Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda, and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. The Qalam Podcast has become an important part of people's lives all around the world. There are millions of people benefiting from the podcast every single day. Thousands of hours of content, dozens of different series from all the different teachers and scholars here at Qalam. All of this is delivered to the community free of charge. We are excited and actively working to grow and increase our efforts to deliver more and more benefit to the community. We ask you to support our efforts and become part of the Qalam family. Please go to qalamfamily.com and sign up to contribute to this Sadaqa Jariyah on a monthly basis. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of us Jazakumullahu khairan wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. we discussed how the Prophet took the questioner and the student into consideration when answering them. Therefore, what the Prophet said to the person that was asking him was applicable. It was something that they could relate to and implement in their life, adding value to the knowledge that they gained. Today, Shaykh Abdul Fatah Abu Ghadda takes us to another very interesting perspective and aspect of the teaching of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ta'alimuhu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam bilhiwari walmusa'ala how Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would educate the companions through conversation through asking questions and then when it comes to this asking of questions there were different types of questions Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam asked so for each one, he has a small little chapter. Sometimes Nabi Wasallam's questions were rhetorical. Other times, Rasulullah would ask a question, and it was more reflective, where the answer wasn't a direct one, but he would present a scenario and make the companions think about the answer um, through engaging them by asking that question. Through all these different types of questions, what you see is, when you're teaching, you can either give the answer right from the beginning, or what you can do is make the student work a little. And by making them work, they then desire and appreciate, they desire the answer and they appreciate the answer as well. The second thing is that by asking them questions and guided questions, not open-ended questions, but guided questions, if you ask the right questions and you've developed them properly, you will enable them to reach a new place in their thought that they wouldn't have gone to before. So when you're asking them questions, and if those questions are properly crafted, think of it as taking them for a walk in their own mind. That you're taking them to a place that you already know what this is. The tools that you need to answer this question already exist in you. Now I want you to think about it. And sometimes you may ask them a question beyond their pay grade, beyond their capacity, 
And that in itself has value to them as well. There's a benefit there. It's where the student is completely buckled and they're shocked and they think to themselves that I don't even know where to start here. And then you break it down to them slowly. So asking questions is a very beautiful technique to use when educated. In reality, I think the more a teacher does it, the better. But the questions have to be meaningful. They have to be guided. You can use them as a tool of engagement. Personally, when I teach, I do this quite a bit, where I'll ask questions. And sometimes the questions are just require the student to repeat something I said three seconds ago. But it forces them to go back and think that what was the answer? I can't fall off of the chain. I have to follow every statement because there may be a question that follows. So that it's a tool of engagement. Sometimes you have taught a masala, but you present that same issue, but from another perspective, a new scenario. Encouraging the student to um, take their knowledge from one scenario and not implement it into another. And you'll see this through the examples of Rasulullah Through questioning, the Prophet encourages the companions to use knowledge they already have, but apply it in a new place. We'll see the example very soon. The first narration, actually, in this chapter, he quotes the Hadith of Bukhari and Muslim, narrated by Abu Hurairah. <laughs> So the Prophet asks the companions a question, the answer to which they know very clearly because their experience and life has taught them the answer to that. And what was the question? The person has a, a river that passes right by their house and they bathe in that river five times a day. Will there remain any filth on their body? Everyone knows the answer to this because we've experienced it. We know what one shower does. We know what washing our hands multiple times a day does. We know brushing our teeth three, four times a day, what that does. Now imagine someone bathing five times a day. So this is knowledge that already exists with them. Now the Prophet ﷺ, he helps them migrate and bring that knowledge to another scenario. This is the example of the five daily prayers that through them Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala washes away and erases your mistakes and your sins. The teaching methodology of Rasulullah As a teacher, you may feel that, why don't I just give the answer quickly? Just make it quick. No. The journey to the answer actually becomes a part of the answer. Your job as a teacher is to create that journey. Sometimes we would ask our teachers a question. There was one particular question I recall. Um, It was the question of the virtue of cleaning the masjid. I don't remember how, but that question came, came in front of me and I had to answer it. Someone asked that where is the narration regarding the virtue of cleaning the masjid? Specifically in one narration, the Prophet said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, the Prophet said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward that person with the maidens of paradise. So he said to me, so I was looking for the narration and I couldn't find it. And I searched and searched, by the way, this is pre-internet. So you didn't pop it and you had to go through books and I was just pop, going through pages and pages trying to find it and I couldn't. 
So I went to my teacher and I said to him, Sheikh, uh, where is the answer to this narration? So first of all, he refused to give it. He said, keep looking. So another week went by. Must have gone through hundreds of pages, maybe thousands, hundreds of pages, sitting in the library, going through one book at a time, trying to find the riwayah. Not that it didn't exist. It's just that I wasn't doing a good job, unfortunately. Then finally, I went to him again, and I said, Sheikh, I can't find the narration. Can you help me? So then, uh, Sheikh Bilal, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect him and preserve him, he then said to me, he didn't give me the answer. He gave me like an, a nudge. He said, check Ibn Majah. You might find it there. Sunan Ibn Majah. And then when I went and I checked, I found the riwayah there. Where the Prophet says that someone that removes something from the masjid that causes pain or harm to another person, in return, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward them so and so. So you nudge the student, you guide them, guided answers. Go ahead, Bismillah. So let's start here today. Here he talks about the teaching method of Rasulullah through questioning and conversation. Dialogue and questions. Dialogue and questions are the Prophet's most prominent methods of teaching, since that draws the attention of listeners, arouses their curiosity to know the answer, and prompt them to reflect on the answer. If they were unable to provide an answer, the answer of the Prophet will be well understood and entrenched in their minds. Bukhari and Muslim reported on the authority of Muhammad who said, the Messenger of Allah said, if there was a river by the door of one of you, and he was to bathe therein five times daily, will any dirt remain on him? They replied, no dirt will remain on him. The Prophet said, this resembles the five daily prayers. Allah wipes off sins with them. In this hadith, we see, beside dialogue, other educational methods, such as bringing an abstract concept into a tangible understanding to it, uh, to make it very clear and understandable to the student. In this example, the Prophet compared the cleansing of tangible dirt on the body in clothes with ample clean water to the five daily prayers and how it cleanses the sins and faults of the worshiper. So here we also see the Prophet connects the tangible and intangible, the spiritual and the physical. That just as we give importance to bathing every day and cleaning ourselves and cleaning our garments, the same should apply to your spirituality. That give that the same importance, if not more. There should be more importance on cleaning yourself spiritually and praying your salawat and engaging in dhikr and doing good deeds. Yes. Imam Ahmad reported in his mustad on the authority of Abdullah who said, I heard the messenger of Allah saying, do you know who the Muslim is? So this is an interesting narration because the Prophet asked three questions, the answer to which anyone would know. Like a person who is even a, a new Muslim would know the answer. He said, Tadruna mal Muslim, Tadruna mal Mu'min, Tadruna mal Muhajir. Right? Do you know who the believer is? Do you know who the Muslim is? Do you know who the muhajir is? And these are basic words, right? But Nabi Wasallam asked these basic questions to give them a deeper answer. That there is an answer that's, that everyone knows, but that there is something deeper that needs to be understood here. Yes, go ahead. The companions replied, Allah and his messenger know best. He said, a Muslim is he from whose tongue and hands other Muslims are saved. He asked, Do you know who the, who the believer is? The companions asked, 
I said, Allah and His Messenger know best. He said, He is whom the believers trusted with their lives and their wealth. And an immigrant, Muhajir, is he who left evil and prepared to abstain from it. So the Prophet specifically regarding the Muhajir, someone who migrates, he took them to a, again, from the tangible to the intangible. That there is a physical migration that occurs, which is tough and difficult. But once that's done, now you need to go to the second tier or deeper level of hijrah, which is hijrah min hijrah min that you are migrating from a life of sins and khataya and, and, and wrongdoing to a life of righteousness. That's a hijrah that occurs. The same thing goes with hajj. Right? People perform the pilgrimage, as one Urdu poet he says that you know people think that going to Mecca and Medina is the hajj. But when you return back, you're the same old sinner. Hajj was about you making qasr. The word hajj means to make intention, to make intent of turning your life to Allah. What kind of hajj have you done that the moment you return, your life has returned back to itself? It hasn't actually made its way to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's about changing your life. Classically, historically, when someone will perform hajj, it was such a big act that you would see their life change. So people would then admire it that I can't wait for the day that I need to go for Hajj too. And one of the reasons why there was change that came from that Hajj, as I was mentioning earlier, because it wasn't as simple as jumping on a plane and eight, nine hours later you're in Mecca, and then you'll hear stories of people coming back from Mecca and Medina for Umrah within like four days. It wasn't that, right? It would probably take you three, four days just to get to the port of your own country. And then the journey started. So they would write their wills, they would, fare, they would uh, farewell everyone, and then they would go on the journey. So because the journey was prolonged and it was difficult and there, was, there were so many barriers, the people who took this journey on really wanted it. So when they came back, they couldn't just waste it. And therefore, people would refer to a person that went to Hajj with the title, Hajj, Haji. It wasn't just a normal person, this was someone special. Someone that proved their love to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by putting their own love and taking on the task of, of, of suffer, of traveling from one part of the world to another part. You might hear stories from your grandparents if they are still alive, or your great-grandparents. They'll tell you about their journey of Hajj, how they did their first or second Hajj and Umrah on ship. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us tawfiq to uh, appreciate the ibadat that we do. Our task Allah sent us at a time, we live in a time where, for most of us at least, our test is not in the physical challenge. There really aren't too many physical barriers that we have to break through for worshipping Allah or to do good. Our task is controlling the wildness of our hearts and minds. That's where our task is. You can earn your Jannah actually without breaking a sweat. The people of the past, they had to put their life on the line. You know, illness, death notes, someone passed away, someone's gone. A famous scholar from the subcontinent, he says that when I was a student, I had a policy of not reading any letters that I received. During the academic year, I wouldn't read them. I would just gather them together in a, in a little uh, box he had. So if letters would come, he'd put it into the box. Letter would come, he'd put it into the box. And then once the semester was over, and the reason why he said it was because they would occupy him and he needed to give his whole attention to his studies. So he, in our language, 
no emails, no text messages, no phone calls during the academic year, right? And when breaks would come, when break, when Eid al-Adha break would come or Ramadan break would come, he said, I would open up the box and it was just full of tears and, and smiles. Mostly there were notes of people passing away in my family, that my uncle had passed away, my cousin had passed away, our neighbor had passed away, my relative wrote a letter to me about it, and it would mostly just be tears and heavy tears. So there was a challenge, there was a physical challenge involved. In our world, there's no physical challenge. In reality, the barrier to, um, to the physical barrier, I'm not even sure if it exists anymore. Specifically post-COVID, it doesn't exist anymore. We have people that are with us right now online um, taking this class, studying with us. There's almost no physical barrier, but that comes with its own challenge. The challenge that it comes to with now is taking this knowledge seriously. That taking this deen seriously. Understanding in this moment, even though there is no difficulty for you to be here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala still gave you tawfiq and gave us all tawfiq to be a part of this gathering. And now it's our chance to understand that these are the most valuable moments of our life. These gatherings, being here in the masjid, being in gatherings of knowledge, being surrounded by righteous people that are sitting next to you and in front of you. On the Day of Judgment, these are gatherings that we will remember. The other gatherings will cease to exist, they will disappear. Because gatherings that matter are gatherings in which Allah and His Rasul are mentioned in. All other gatherings are nothing. Yes, go ahead. By the way, if you're wondering why am I saying such a bold statement, it's because Rasulullah said it. But the earth, this world, this material world, it is cursed. And everything in its material web is also cursed. But, but what? The remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's not cursed. That's what matters. And whatever connects you and joins you and is near that domain. And a scholar and a student. The scholar and student are on the journey of helping one another to reach there. And everyone else is just floating. They're just floating. If they're lucky, they'll find a way to make their existence about the remembrance of Allah or even that ship they won't be able to connect to. So then their existence in this world, unfortunately, is wasted. The challenge that we face, as, uh, as I mentioned, is not a physical one. I'm not sure if there are physical challenges anymore. But there are challenges that are to do with our heart, connecting, ikhlas, istiqamah, focus, consistency. Yes, go ahead. The fact that the Prophet used the words of Muslims and believers here is not to allow his disagreeable, disagreeable behavior with others. Rather, he used it to match the words of the Muslim and believer. Inflicting harm or betraying trust is forbidden in Islam, whether with Muslims or non Muslims, except in war. I believe that harming or cheating on Muslims. Except in war, which is logical, right? Because you're in war. The other person intends evil to you, so then you have to protect yourself and even fight back. Yes. I believe that harming or cheating on Muslims is being more forbidden, is more forbidden as the Prophet warned that he will be the plaintiff in such a case as afforded in the authentic hadith by Abu Dawood in his sunnah. Let it be known that whoever was unfair to a peaceful non-Muslim, disparaged him, or burdened him about capacity, 
or took something from him against his will, I shall be his opponent on the day of resurrection. So this prohibition of harming another is not limited just to Muslims. It's for non-Muslims as well. That a Muslim does not harm another with their tongue or with their hand. Muslim or non-Muslim. You take care of everyone. Okay, we'll go to the next narration. This next narration is from Imam Muslim Rahmatullahi Alayhi. Again, here, the Prophet educates through questioning and conversation. Do you know um, who is a bankrupt person? Iflas is to have no wealth. It's not just not having wealth, that's, that's fatah. Iflas is for a person to have wealth and then to lose it. That's ikhlas. Bankruptcy. Someone had wealth and then they lost it all. Malmuflis. The interesting thing here, and this is a small um, point, specifically for those who understand Arabic, that an argument could be made, should it not be manil muflis? Because man is for the wil'ul and ma is for ghayr the wil'ul. So when we talk about a living being or entity, you use the word man. Man rabbuk, who is your Lord, living entity. Ma is when you're inquiring about or making mention of a non-living entity. Ma dinuk, in the question, the questioning in the grave. Man rabbuk, man nabiyuk, ma dinuk. Because deen, religion, is not a living entity. It's later the So therefore you use the word ma. But here, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam questioned, Now there seems to be a discrepancy here because muflis is a bankrupt person, living entity or not. It is a living, living individual, right? The person's alive. So someone can argue that this is misusage of language. Uh, obviously it isn't. The ulama, they discuss this. One of the answers they give is, وَالسُؤَالُ هُنَا and haqiqat al-muflis that the Prophet wasn't talking about the individual when he asked the question rather he was talking about bankruptcy itself but what does it mean to be broke not so much focused on the individual but the concept of being broke alama ubi he says that haqa ba'dhum anna madhab al-sibwayh jawazu wuqiha ala man ya'qul and then there are arguments that do also tell us that um, such a word can be used, ma can also be used for the living as well. And they, argue, and they cite the ayah of the Quran where Fir'aun said, Ma Rabbul Alameen. And who is the Lord of the worlds? So there, that word ma is used in place of man. So there's a linguistic discussion here. It's an interesting one for those who can appreciate it. Um, in, in some riwayah, by the way, some narrations actually have it as atadruna manil muflis. In Riyadh al-Sadiqin, Imam Nawawi rahimahullah narrates this hadith with, narrates this riwayah with manil muflis. However, Shaykh Abdul Fattah Abu Wanda rahimahullah ta'ala, he comments on this narration. He says, وَهُوَ خِلَافُ الْرِوَايَةِ كَمَا عَلِمْتُ that this man being used in the hadith linguistically may be correct in this version of the narration. But it goes against the common narrations. And it seems to be um, a, a, a change that was caused by one of the narrators because the majority of the narrations presented as mal Okay, 
So now let's come back to the actual issue here. The Prophet is drawing their attention to what does it mean to be bankrupt? Because in the community, when you think of a poor person, it sucks. Like you feel like man, poor individual didn't have access to wealth or maybe didn't um, meet the opportunity at the right time. But when someone talks about bankruptcy, that hurts deep. Why is that, folks? It was in your hand, you had it. It was yours, and then it left. So you think to yourself, man, that must have been some really bad luck, or maybe that person had horrible management, or maybe that person was so greedy. You have extra remorse and regret for that person. You feel extra sad for that individual. So Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says to the companions, what does it mean to be muflis? Al-muflisu fina man la dirham lahu wa la The companions, they said that a muflis in our terminology is one that has nothing. He has no wealth, he has no possessions. So then Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam explains. Again, they're talking about iflas in a physical sense. What does it mean in an economical sense, in their economy, what does it mean in their world, in their society? Rasulullah is making them think of the akhirah. They forget about the iflas in this world. Wealth comes and goes. That Allah gives and Allah retracts. That's in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. However, the worst form of iflas is the hereafter. And the, the, I'll read the riwayah in a moment, but it really relates to many of us. To me, I can see as well, it relates to myself that we have a part of our life, many of us can refer back to a day in our life, a year in our life where things were great. Someone may say, when I was young, I used to read the Quran regularly. When I was young, my mother used to take me to Sunday school and I knew so much about the deen, that when I was young, I used to go to the masjid and taraweeh in the masjid, and I used to do i'tikaf, and we used to do soup kitchens and distributing food, and we would go back home and help the needy. When I was young, my parents took me for Hajj and Umrah. So there's so much talk about the past, but currently today that person is so far from where they started. That's iflas. That you had hidayah. The Quran was a part of your life. The deen was a part of your life. Therefore, there is a beautiful du'a of Rasulullah that I think we should make a part of our lives to protect ourselves from spiritual bankruptcy. You guys ready for this du'a? It's a very beautiful du'a, and try to uh, make this du'a as frequently as possible. رَبَّنَا لَا تُزِغْ قُرُوبَنَا بَعْدَ إِذْ هَدَيْتَنَا وَهَبْ لَنَا مِنْ لَدُنْكَ رَحْمَةً إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ الْوَهَّابِ This du'a right here. It's a Quranic du'a. For those of you who would like to memorize it, Allah Azawajal says, teaches us to say, رَبَّنَا لَا تُزِغْ قُلُوبَنَا بَعْدَ إِلْ هَدَيْتَنَا O oh Allah, do not, our, do not allow our hearts to uh, astray, to turn away after being guided. وَهَبْ لَنَا And gift us and guide us with mercy from you. إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ الْمُحَابِ You are the one who gives. You are the one who bestows upon people. So this is a beautiful du'a to me. The believer is never content with their current state. You're always worried about what happens next because what matters most is the end of your life, not the past. The past is good to reflect back on, but where are you today? You know, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi said, Actions are based off of their, their ending. Actions are based off of their, Similarly, there is a du'a 
Some have attributed it to Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, but most likely the more correct here is that it's attributed to a Sahabi and even that Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq So the dua is Allahumma What's the first word? Yeah. Allahumma ja'al khayra umri akhira. Allahumma ja'al Allah, make the last part of my life the best part of my life. Wa khayra amali khatimahu aw khawatimahu. And make the best deeds the last deed that I do. There have been so many deeds in my life, but the last deed that I do should be the best one. Wa khayra ayyami yawm alqaqa fihi ya rabbal alameen. And make the best day in my life, the happiest day. Think of all the good days you've had. Are you all thinking of good days? Maybe when you were in Paris for whatever reason, or you were in London, or maybe you're standing at the waterfall, or maybe you're standing under the fall. You guys ever stand under a waterfall? How does it feel? It's magical. It really, it's magical. You feel the sound and the feeling and the water. You're so immersed in that moment that as um, one Urdu poet said, but he's talking about visiting Medina Munawwara, but I think they, someone could borrow that expression. He says, uh, forget it, my mind's all over the place today, I apologize. But the, the translation to the line here is that, that um, my dua for you is, the poet is saying to the visitor of Medina, um, Oh, it's right at the tip of my tongue. The poem is. The poem is. Anyway, he says, That's the last line of it, right? That my prayer to you is, my, my request to you is, that when you go to Medina Munawara, that you arrive there in a state that you forget the rest of the world. That's what I want for you. That when you enter into Medina Munawwara, that when you arrive to the Rawla of Rasulullah, that my dua is that you forget the whole world and all that matters is that you're there. So, just as a person standing underneath the waterfall, or a person that's walking in their garden, or maybe someone that's having a meal for the first time with their soon to be companion of life, these are all special moments, right? But the dua here is, Oh Allah, make the best day in my life today that I meet you and I'm standing before you on the Day of Judgment. That should be the happiest day of my life. Okay, continue. Jump to the part where he translates Iflas, if you can. He said, the bankrupt, the bankrupt one is is Ayyami Yawm Al-Qaqa Fihi Ya is he who comes on the Day of Resurrection with his prayers, Fasting in Zakat, but he comes after he had swore on this person, slandered this person, devoured the wealth of this person, shed the blood of this person, and beaten this person. This person will be given from his good deeds, and this person will be given from his good deeds. If all his good deeds are finished before he has paid them back, their evil deeds will be taken from them and cast onto him. He will then be cast into the hellfire. That's the one who shows up on the Day of Judgment with so many good deeds, but then because they couldn't control their tongue, because they had no other for another human being, because they spoke out of line, because they hurt someone, because they brought tears to another person's eyes, all those deeds are taken away. 
And bichara akela insan is standing there now with nothing left to fall back on. It's all been taken away, it's all been stripped away because of their own doing. This is what Rasulullah says, what Iflas is. He shares two more narrations. Um, the next narration, actually, we already covered two, there's one left. The next narration that he shares is a longer narration, and we see in this narration how um, the Prophet is in conversation with Umar at the end, and during the length of the narration, the Prophet is in conversation with Jibreel. This is referred to as Hadith Jibreel. So there as well, we see that Jibreel is engaging with Rasulullah, actually engaging with the people. Hadith Jibreel was not an educational moment for the Prophet Nabi knew the answers. It was an educational moment for who? For the audience, for the attendees, and for us. And so Jibreel approaches the Prophet as an anonymous person and begins to question. It's a long narration, I'll summarize it for you. He asked him, what is Islam? Nabi Sallallahu responded back with what we refer to as the five pillars of Islam. That, you know, shahada, salah, zakah, salm, hajj. He then asked him, what is Iman? So Nabi Sallallahu engaged back with him. And then he lists about the six tenets of faith that you believe in Allah. Uh, the angels, the kutubihi, revelation, scriptures, borusulihi, prophets and messengers, yomil akhir, the day of judgment, and you believe faith, good and bad, are both from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He then asked him regarding excellence in Iman, that how does a person excel in their deen? So Nabi Sallallahu then opens up the spiritual dimension. That after believing in what you need to believe in and engaging your limbs with actions that will worship Allah, in order for you to reach excellence, you will need to connect your belief and your physical actions with your heart. All this needs to be connected together. You know, you have a dock for a computer, but you connect the dong over the computer and then, I'm sorry, for the keyboard and the mouse and the HDMI cord and the audio jack. You need it all to come together into a heart. It all needs to feed through there. And once that comes, once that happens, now you have display. Now you have it all coming together. Now you get your fida as well. He then asked Rasulullah regarding the day of judgment to that Nabi said, I do not know. And he said it more eloquently. He said that neither of us know. Right. Letting Jibreel alayhi salam almost know, wink, wink, I know what's going on here. <laughs> because as the Prophet didn't know, the Prophet of Allah also knew, no one else knows. This is an object that only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has. And then he asked for signs, and to that Rasulullah uh, informed him with some signs. And then after Jibreel alayhi salam left, the Prophet asked Umar radiallahu do you know who it was? He said, I don't know. And to that Rasulullah said that was Jibreel who came to teach you your deen. Um, Shaykh Abdul Fattah narrates the full narration with some um, beautiful footnotes. We'll leave that for you guys to read in your own time. Uh, with that, we'll conclude here today. We pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts and grants us tawfiq. We'll read the next chapter in our next class. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.